Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today's program should encourage you and your faith. Author Bill Federer is here to discuss his new devotional entitled, Believe. We all need to be reminded of the almighty, everlasting power of God. Bill Federer is here today to do just that. We're excited to announce that our website, swrc.com, now has over 1,000 items listed in our resource center. Brand new books and DVDs on biblical prophecy, as well as classics back in print, in some cases, for the first time in decades. Classic issues of the Prophecy in the News magazine, books by J.R. Church, DVDs and CDs from the vast library of both Watchmen on the Wall and Prophecy in the News. Visit swrc.com and check out all the wonderful items. Free shipping on all orders over $100. swrc.com Bill Federer is here now to encourage us with his brand new book entitled, Believe. A biblical worldview is no longer commonplace in America. According to a new study by George Barna, the majority of millennial-age moms and dads lack a biblically-founded faith that they can pass on to their children. Barna said, quote, Most of the parents of young children in America, if they were to die today, probably would not wind up in heaven, close quotes. Each day we see a decline of faith in our country, so I've asked Bill Federer to be on the program with me today to talk about how we can get our focus back to God. Bill is no stranger to our program, having been on many times through the years. He is a historian and the author of over 20 books. Bill and his wife, Susie, have written a new book titled Believe, and I think that it is a book that is needed today to help us refocus on Jesus Christ. Bill, Thanks for joining me on the Watchman on the Wall today. Hey, thank you so much. This is a book we're really excited about. We want to turn the country around, but we also want to bring people to Christ. And this book sort of presents the gospel in a C.S. Lewis-type format, right? It gets you to think. Now, he's the author that wrote Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, and he was brought to faith by J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings. But it has sort of a deep-thinking way of explaining the gospel, So we think of redemption and the plan from our point of view, but let's look at it for a moment from God's point of view. Here's God. He exists for eternity. There never was a time when God did not exist, and he makes everything. Just to get an idea of how big and powerful God is, in 2003 they focused the powerful Hubble telescope on a tiny spot in the sky. The spot was so small, it was the size of a grain of sand held between your fingers at arm's length against the night sky. For two weeks, when they developed the images, in that little spot where there was nothing, was 10,000 galaxies. Amazing. With hundreds of billions of stars in each galaxy. And they began to look in other directions and say, gee, it goes off. And because light travels in waves, with blue being the shortest and fastest wave and red being the slowest and longest, they saw a red shift, which means these galaxies are moving away from us. In 1924, they thought galaxy and universe were synonymous. But it was in 1924 when Edwin Hubble 
discovered the Andromeda Galaxy 2.5 million light years away. But it was just our Milky Way and the Andromeda. They thought, okay, that's it. But now they estimate the observable universe is 93 billion light years across. And get this, still expanding at the speed of light. And the largest star they found is Stevenson 2-18. Stevenson 2-18 is a super gas giant. It is so large, if you were to place Stevenson 2-18 in our solar system, it would engulf the orbit of Saturn, the sixth planet from the sun. We're the third planet from the sun. Could you imagine one single star that big? And God made it all. What could you possibly offer a being that is that powerful? Right? Nothing except maybe your will. And so God makes everything with rules and laws. And what's a galaxy anyway? It's a bunch of rocks. Hot rocks, cold rocks, vaporized rocks, molten rocks. A rock cannot love you. So at some time in eternity past, God said, been there, done that. I would really like someone in my image that could love me. Well, now it gets interesting because love, by definition, must be voluntary. The moment it's forced, it evaporates. If God were to force you to love him, he himself would know he's forcing you to love him, and he would know your response is not a love response. So in this framework of everything he controls, time, matter, space, energy, he created one tiny little thing he doesn't control, your will. Now, he could control it if he wanted to, but that would defeat the very reason he made us different than everything else. And he doesn't need our love. He's not incomplete in any way, and our love somehow completes him. No, he's complete all by himself. He doesn't need our love, but he wants it. Parents don't need the love of their children, but they want it. And the more you love someone, the more you want that someone to love you back. God loves you infinitely. He has an infinite desire for you to love him back. But love must be voluntary. And so he creates us as free will beings that have the capacity to love. But then there's a second part. He has to hide himself behind his creation. Because if he ever revealed himself to us in all of the fullness of his omnipotent power and glory and universe-creating majesty brighter than a million suns, our response, if we didn't melt, (laughs) would be insane and involuntary, like the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, I fell at his feet as dead. And it would be an instinctive response, not a voluntary response. And God's like, I can do instinctive responses for all eternity. I've been there, done that. I'm interested in a voluntary response. And so he hides himself behind his creation. In other words, people say, if God's real, why doesn't he show himself? Because the moment he showed himself, he would not only prove he's real, it would remove your free will. But the same hiding of himself that gives us a free will necessitates that we have faith, right? And so he creates us as free will beings. He hides himself so we have the opportunity to exercise free will. I looked at the word angel in the Bible. Mm -hmm. The word angel appears 289 times in the King James Bible. Never once does it say the angels love God says they worship him, they praise him, they smite his enemies, they deliver his messages, they're ministers under the heirs of salvation, but the word love is not used in any sentence where it mentions the word angel. But love is used all through where it mentions man. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
Jesus rises from the dead and asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? We are beings that are unique in all of God's creation because we have the capacity to love him. And he sets up this world that we're in so that we have the opportunity to make a free will decision. But there's a third thing. God is just, and he can't help it. And being just means he has to judge every sin, even the smallest, even the tiniest. If God does not judge a sin, by default, he's giving consent to the sin. It's called the rule of tacit admission, T-A-C-I-T, in common law. Numbers chapter 30 in the Bible The whole chapter gives all these scenarios where silence equals consent. One is if a daughter is in her father's house and the daughter makes a vow. In the day the father hears it, if he is silent, he is giving consent to her vows. Her vows stand and she is bound by them. But if in the day he hears of her vows and he disallows it, she's released from her vows and the Lord forgives her. That has come down to us in wedding ceremonies, where the pastor has the congregation there, and there is an exchanging of what? Vows. And the pastor says, anybody that's against this wedding, speak now or forever hold your peace. And so if you are at the wedding and you are silent, your silence is giving consent to the wedding. It's called the rule of tacit admission. And in common law, Blackstone's law commentary If someone is accused of a crime and they do not deny it, a jury can reasonably assume that they're guilty. (laughs) And so if there are sins being committed and God is silent and not judging the sin, by default he's giving consent to the sin. And if God gives consent to sin, he is no longer a just God. He denies his just nature. He denies himself. He ungods himself. He's kicked out of heaven. And he is not going to get kicked out of heaven, and he is not going to deny himself, and he is going to judge every sin. And so here's the dilemma. So he creates us to have the capacity to love him. He hides himself so we have the opportunity to love him. But if we step out of line, his just nature has to judge us. Because if he doesn't judge us, he's giving consent to our sin. And if he gives consent to sin, he denies himself. So he comes up with a plan. And the plan is, His own son would become the lamb and take the judgment for all of our sins. Only as a man could God hang on the cross and die, right? So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten son of God, in the plan of redemption hidden from ages, it says if the princes of this world had known, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. It was a hidden plan. Jesus came to earth, became a man, and took the judgment, the wrath of God for all of our sins upon himself on the cross. So that way God could maintain that he is a completely just God and that he judges every sin, but he's a completely loving God in that he provided the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. So Abraham and Isaac are going to the top of Mount Moriah. And Isaac says, Father, we have the wood for the sacrifice, and we have the coals for the sacrifice, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, Son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. 
and it has a double meaning. I'm trusting God will have a ram up in the bush, right? But the other is God will provide himself as the sacrifice. And that's what happened. Jesus, the second person in Trinity, the only begotten Son of God, became the lamb, became the sacrifice. And you think, well, God's a just God. The price that Jesus is paying as our substitute has to equal what we would have suffered, all of humanity, for being forever separated from God in hell. Now, how can one person pay that price? Jesus is the Son of God. You know, I was reading the book of Revelation, and one thing seems clear. It's God that's pouring out the vials of judgment. Right. The lamb breaks the seal, the angel throws the censer down, the angels blow the trumpets, the vials are poured out. Why is that? Well, this is the final judgment. And so God is going to judge every city so that for the rest of eternity there will not be any more judging. So that you can't get 10,000 years into eternity and say, God, there were these sins way back when, and, and you didn't judge them. Were you being silent? Were you giving consent to those sins? Is there a part of you that's unjust that we didn't know about? No, it says the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, and the angels cry out, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Nobody's going to question for the rest of eternity that God is just and he judged sin. But in that sense, Jesus had the book of Revelation judgment poured out on his head. He took the judgment for every sin that everybody would ever do upon himself on the cross. It says, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. Jesus, being the divine Son of God, experienced that day on the cross as if it was a thousand years. And, you know, I have a degree in accounting, so I like things that balance. And so if you think of it as a scale, an eternal being, Jesus, who's innocent, suffering for a finite, limited period of time is equal to all of us finite, limited beings who are guilty suffering for an eternal period of time. Let me say that again. An eternal being who's innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, is equal to all of us finite beings who are guilty suffering for an eternal period of time. Infinity times finite equals finite times infinity. Right? An unlimited being suffering for a limited period of time is equal to all of us limited beings suffering for an unlimited period of time. Jesus literally suffered the equivalent of eternal damnation in all of our places, and he's the only one who could have done it. And out of love for the Father, and out of love for you and me, he became the Lamb, and he took the wrath. That's why he was sweating drops of blood in the garden. But now you and I, can approach this eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful, and all-just God without any fear of being judged, because we're approaching him through the Lamb that he provided. That's why we sing praise songs to Jesus. That's why we call ourselves Christians, right? We're approaching this omnipotent, all-powerful God, and we can call him Father, and we can come into his presence with the same comfortable acceptance as Jesus himself comes into God the Father's prayer. Why? Because we are coming in the name of Jesus. We're adopted sons through Jesus. This is just one of the things I bring out in the book. The title of the book is Believe, and it's as a way to present the gospel in a way that 
a lot of young people have a way to relate to. Statistics say that faith is at an all-time low, so I think a book like this is needed now more than ever to encourage people in their faith and to point the lost to Jesus Christ. And this book is a devotional, which is different from most of your books. The design is different. It is similar to a coffee table gift book. Your wife, Susie, is your co-author on Believe. How did this book come about? She wanted to put scripture verses that talk about salvation, talk about God having a plan for your life, talk about how God wants to bless you, He wants to lead you, He wants to have His Holy Spirit dwell on the inside of you and give you direction. And She collected the scriptures together with some of the quotations from my books, America's God and Country and others, where you have you know Lincoln and Jefferson and Franklin, and they're talking about having faith. And so she put that together, and then I did the chapter, Believe in the Lamb of God. And that's where I go through what I just explained. It's just fascinating. One of the things I bring out is the lamb. If you've ever sinned against anybody, you sort of don't want to be around the person you've sinned against. So, you know, let's say you're talking about somebody behind their back and you're joking, making fun of them. And then you look up and there's that very person and they're walking towards you. Question, do you feel drawn to go over to them? Or are you like, "Uh, I feel embarrassed. I think I'm going to slip out the back. Your own conscience does not want you to be around someone you've sinned against. So when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they're the ones that hit. Right? It's like two magnets that are stuck together, and one of the magnets turns. The other one still wants to touch, but the second one wants to get away. You call it in the book the religion of the fig leaves, because Adam and Eve sinned, and they try to do something to make themselves acceptable to God again. Would you explain that, the religion of the fig leaves? not so much that God sends people to hell. It's once people sin against God, it's their own conscience that make them want to stay away from God and avoid God. And so Adam and Eve said, man, we blew it. We have to do something to make ourselves acceptable to God. They put on fig leaves. It was their idea. This is the beginning of false religions. Man coming up with man's idea how to make man acceptable to God. It's works. Did Adam and Eve's fig leaves make them acceptable to God? No. And then we read this little line. It says, God made Adam and Eve coats of skins. Question, how do you make a coat of skin? Something has to die. Mm-hmm. So you think God went to the other side of the garden, killed an animal, and brought Adam and Eve some nice tailored outfits? Or do you think maybe he killed the animal right in front of them? And they witnessed the first death ever. Right? Creation just happened. This would have been the first thing to die. And Adam and Eve are watching this innocent animal go through the pangs of dying. And they're thinking to themselves, uh, we're the ones that sin, but this innocent animal is the one that's dying. And God wanted to make it really clear to them that this animal died in their place, that right in front of them, he strips the skin off the animal and he puts it on their naked bodies. Maybe it still had a little blood on it. They were covered in the blood. And so for the rest of their lives, they are wearing the skin of the animal that they watched die in their place. And whenever God sees Adam and Eve, he sees them clothed with the skin of the animal, the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. So Adam and Eve tell Cain and Abel. Cain decides he wants to worship God, but he does an offshoot of the church of the fig leaf. He starts the church of the fruits and the nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Cain's is a religion of works, and we know it's works. Because God told Adam, the ground is cursed for your sake, and you'll bring forth fruit by the sweat of your brow. 
So Cain is bringing forth fruit out of the ground. He's sweating. He's working. He's trying to work his way to heaven. He piles all his works on the altar. Did Cain's works make him acceptable to God? No. And Abel does the lamb thing. And it's this beautiful picture. God is on one side. We are on the other side. Our sins separate us from God. It's like the magnet turned the wrong way. We're repulsed from him. And then the lamb pays for the sin. And our magnet flips around, and we're instantly accepted by God. And so this is what Noah got off the ark. He sacrificed lambs. Abraham sacrificed lambs. Moses had every family in Israel kill a lamb and put the blood over the doorpost of the house so the angel of death would pass over. The high priest brings the blood of the lamb into the Holy of Holies and sprinkles it on the mercy seat. The blood actually changed it from a judgment seat into a mercy seat. Right? If the high priest would have approached without the blood, there's the law inside of that ark and the presence of the Lord above it, and God would have seen the people sin. But the high priest sprinkles the blood saying, this lamb took the judgment in our place. Solomon had a thousand lambs sacrificed when he dedicated the temple. Finally, John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. So God is on one side, we are on the other side. Our sins separate us from God, and the Lamb pays for the sin. So I ask people, are you approaching God as Cain or as Abel? If you're still hoping you're good enough to go to heaven... You are approaching God as Cain. I hope I've piled enough good works on the altar. Maybe a couple more handfuls of barley. That'll do it. Or are you approaching God as Abel? It's not me being good enough. It's this lamb that was good enough to take the judgment for all my sins. Right? So as long as you think your relationship with God is based on you being good enough, you will always have this nagging thought in the back of your head, did I do enough? And your own conscience will tell you, no, you didn't do enough. You'll never be able to do enough. That very thought will cause you to hesitate coming into the Lord's presence. Am I accepted by him? I don't know. I don't feel like I did enough. The moment you believe that Jesus paid for all your sins, all of them? Yes, all of them. All of them? Yes, all of them. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed you from your sins. He's thrown all your sins in the depths of the sea. He's blotted out all your transgressions. The moment you believe that, really, really believe it, your magnet flips around, boom, you're instantly connected in the presence of the Lord. You feel his love. And it's not based on you being good enough. It's based on you accepting that he was good enough to pay for all your sins. And then he fills you with his Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit reaches out through you to a lost and dying world to love the unlovable, to rescue those unjustly sentenced to death and defend the defenseless. So instead of you being like Cain, trying to do a whole bunch of good works and pile of stuff on the altar, right, trying to earn brownie points with God, you're already accepted by God through the blood of Christ, and it's the Holy Spirit doing the good works through you. His yoke is easy, his burdens light, right? And people are attracted to you, but not really you. They're attracted to the Holy Spirit and you that draws them to Jesus, that draws them to the Father. It's just such a beautiful story, and we were so excited to put it into this book, Believe, and I really think that it is an excellent tool to present the gospel to young people nowadays. Well, this is James Collins, and my guest on The Watchman on the Wall today is Bill Federer, and we're talking about his new devotional book titled Believe, and like Bill said, this book is a great way to present the gospel. Order a copy now by calling 1-800-652-1144. 1-800-652-1144, or you can order online at swrc.com. 
Now, Bill, you're known as one of America's best historians, and our country is falling apart. From a historian perspective and from a man who loves the Lord, do you think there is any hope for revival in America? Oh, definitely. Every generation has had a crisis. Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, the Spanish flu, World War One, II. There's always a crisis, and if we get through the crisis we're in now, there'll be another one. If we get through that crisis, there'll be another one. Jesus says wheat and tares grow together till the harvest. So we want to turn the country around, but on the other hand, the crisis is God giving us an opportunity where we're pressed to have to make a decision. And I think that it's, in a sense, a mini self-sorting out of the sheep and the goats. It's not the ultimate, Jesus, you know, said that, you know, I was naked and you clothed me. And No, but on a smaller level, the crisis pushes us to make a decision. I use a little illustration, freshman chemistry class, there's a beaker that the professor holds up with a solution in it, and he pours in a catalyst that causes a reaction. And some stuff in the beaker precipitates and turns into little particles and gets heavy and floats to the bottom of the beaker. And other stuff gets effervescent and bubbly and floats to the top. So the time period we're living in is our solution in the beaker. The crisis of our time period is the catalyst that's poured in. And some people's response is to precipitate, to get to drop out, to run away, to hide, and, and even deny their faith. And some will even take the mark of the beast. But other people's response to the crises is to get effervescent and bubbly. And, you know, when the early church was persecuted, they prayed for more boldness. They prayed for more effervescence. They're like, God, okay, here I am. Use me. Where do you want me? Okay, I want you to reach out to these poor people or rescue the unborn and stand against unrighteousness and defend marriage, right? He wants to use us to have his will and love be poured forth into the world. So we can't be afraid of it. You know, we're the bride of Christ. Every Hallmark movie and romance novel, it builds up to this one point in the movie where there is a decision-making moment of a forsaking of all others and choosing the one. Well, we're the bride of Christ. It only makes sense that God is pushing humanity toward a decision-making moment. Are you and I going to forsake all others and choose Jesus? Well, we are, but this is the push, right? God is looking for his bride, and we're being given this opportunity. So it's a fascinating book, and I just really think that it'll cause a lot of people to examine their faith and come to a new and fresh belief in Jesus and appreciate what he did on the cross for us. Well, Bill, thanks so much for talking with me. God willing, I look forward to seeing you at the Oklahoma City Conference in September. I look forward to it. Today, our featured resource is Bill Federer's brand new book, Believe. Believe is an inspiring devotional of scriptures and quotations. Because we need to believe in the almighty, everlasting power of God, this 200-page book is filled full of encouraging scriptures and quotations, along with insightful and life-changing biblical ideas, concepts, and eternal truths. Order your copy of Believe when you call one 800 652 1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Tomorrow, we get the details of the ancient prophecy of Elam from author Bill Solace. So be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily Watchmen on the Wall podcast. 
Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners just like you. Visit swrc.com. That's swrc.com.